Today on the podcast, we have Clara Lerner, who is a child development specialist with over 30 years of experience working with children and families. Claire, I heard her on another podcast and I knew that we had to have her on because she just wholeheartedly understands that there is some nuance in parenting. So right now when we have experts on or when we go on Instagram, we get kind of like the same coaching and the same theories and the same scripts. And what Abby and I have realized is that for one of our kids, those don't work. And so we need people that are going to talk about what, what happens when that gentle parenting advice doesn't work? What happens when you have a kiddo that is more sensitive, is more reactionary, a kid that sees red sometimes and you know you can't de-escalate he or she like other kids. So that was what we talked about today. I think whether you have one of these kiddos or not, there's so many tangible things inside of this episode. Yeah. What I really loved about it is that she gave solutions without giving the same solutions that everyone else gives. And she also takes the comparison out of it. Comparison from yourself with other parents, comparison between children, and to really treat that child exactly how that child needs to be treated in that situation and just giving permission to explore the other options that we may have not heard of. So overall, I cannot wait to try some of these solutions in our own house and we can't wait to see what you're gathering from this episode as well. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. The reason that I really wanted to have you on our podcast today, Claire, is because I listened to your two-part series with Dr. Eliza Pressman, who has been a guest here in the past on her Raising Good Humans podcast. The conversation that you two had over there is one that does not get enough attention, so I really wanted to continue it over here. Abby and I both have three children, and in both of our households, we have one child in which the scripts and the gentle parenting and all the advice just does not work the same. These kiddos can be quicker to anger, and when they're activated, it's much harder to get them out of that, and it lasts much longer. The script will not take them out of that. So today, we're going to dive into this. As someone that has decades of experience working with young children, I'm wondering, does the generalization of parenting advice bother you? When people are given these scripts that are supposed to work, supposed to be a cure-all, and as Abby and I both know, and as you know, it doesn't always work. Yeah, so I, I think this is sort of one of the the benefits and risks of parenting in this day and age, right? Like there is so much content and so much guidance out there and so much of it is really excellent. But, you know, whenever you're talking to masses of people, you're going to be giving overarching general, right, concepts, theories. 
and in, in, in theory, they're often awesome and make a lot of sense, right? Validating your child's feelings, staying connected to them, you know, co-regulating them, sharing your calm. And of course, those are all very, very important factors and things that we are striving for. But in practice, for the many of the parents who end up coming to see me, just as you're saying, they're they're not working in practice. What sounds good in theory isn't working in practice. And so what happens for a lot of my families is that it actually ends up being a net negative and stressor, all that content, because it makes them feel like there's something wrong with them and there's something wrong with their child. And if they just validated their feelings, their child would recover and move on and build that resilience and grit that everyone, you know, every parent wants their child to have. And so I think there's a real risk and it's why I'm talking quite often to my parents about, you know, how do we take the the end goal, right? And the idea of staying connected and apply it to your unique situation because connection and sharing your calm and helping kids regulate looks very different from family to family. There's like not this one size fits all approach or like one phrase that you're going to say to your child that's sort of some magic um, potion that's going to get them to, you know, pull it together, right? And and get with the program. So I, I think that, you know, this is a wonderful time to be parenting because of how much we know of from the brain science and what children really need to thrive, but also how it's communicated, interpreted by families becomes a major challenge. Yeah. And Claire, I'm the person who will read all the books. I will take all the courses, you know, A through Z. I have every single point figured out. I have my, my notes, my scripts at hand. And then when they weren't working, I felt defeated. I, I would go back to the textbooks. I'd go back to the courses and think, what am I doing wrong? And every time I just felt like I didn't have the right tools for, for that event, for that child specifically. And I know a lot of other people feel that way too. They're just feeling defeated in their role of a parent with these children who are reacting um, at that higher level. And I remember I kept on hearing the same advice. So people would say, you know, just get to their level, Abby, like get down to their level, make sure that you're calm yourself. You know, don't give timeouts, like timeouts, absolutely not. Make sure you give them a really long hug that's going to help them right away and as long as you follow those four steps everything's going to be fine well you know spoiler alert it wasn't fine and again i just kept on feeling defeated so describe it for us because i know that you work with this a lot what do these behaviors of these kiddos look like when they are having these really big reactions so i think you're raising many many issues there are so many factors at play in these moments for kids, right? Like the the starting point is to me, like, to me, this is my thought process and how I help parents unpack these situations, right? So our starting point is a lot of what you've heard, which is children are very complex beings and they are not misbehaving on purpose, right? Like you've heard this over and over again, and it is true, right? They're not purposefully premeditatedly deciding to work your last nerve or mortify you in public or make everybody's lives miserable, right? They are, for a variety of reasons, not able to meet your expectation in that moment, right? Whether it's like not getting the toy at Target or not getting that 
extra episode of Peppa Pig or having to leave the playground or, you know, not grab something from their, you know, new baby brother. In that moment, they're not able to organize themselves in a way in order to do what your expectation is. So that sort of takes me to the next major mind shift because in, in, what I have found is that often it's the mindset that's the problem, right? So the starting mindset is my child's misbehaving, right? Like other three-year-olds can do this. My sister's kids do it. All the kids in the preschool are fine when the, you know, when the teacher says, you know, you're not the snack helper today. And my child is, you know, having a knockdown, drag out meltdown, right? So you, you really want to ground yourself in the fact that these kids are not misbehaving on purpose in that moment. They're not able to meet that expectation. And that's what we have to do is figure out what is the reason for that delta? What is going on for that child that's making it difficult, right, for them to meet that expectation? And the goal is to really understand the driving force behind that behavior, which is why just like reacting to behavior and sort of correcting the behavior itself is rarely helpful because it doesn't get to the driving force behind the child's behavior. So if the child is like knocking, you know, everything down in their path in preschool um, and then just sort of getting put in timeout or getting taken away without really figuring out what need is that child meeting? Like the, the major next question, like once you accept that your child's not trying to misbehave on purpose, but there is something that's getting in the way of them being able to meet that expectation, it takes you down a much more effective path of figuring out what is driving this behavior. But if you see it as misbehavior, right, or there's something wrong with my child, it puts you as a parent in a mindset that is much more harsh and punitive. And that's when things really go off the rails, right? So that's why you've got to start with He's not misbehaving on purpose. There's something getting in the way. And what we need to do is figure out what that is, right? For So for that child who's being too physical, who's giving kids really tight bear hugs and they're falling over and then the kids don't want to play with him because they feel like he's too rough, we have to figure out what need is he meeting and how are we going to help him meet that sensory need in a way that's acceptable, right? So once you stop judging a child's behavior and start to think about what is this child telling me with this behavior? Then you can begin to do what I'm doing with families every day, which is to do the detective work of putting together those pieces of the puzzle. Because you could line up 10 kids who are engaging in the exact same behavior, but it could be for 10 very different reasons, right? For for some kids, it might be a contextual issue, like they have a new baby in the family, or all of a sudden it's post-COVID and mom has started to travel again, right? Or there's a loss in the family, or there's a change in a caregiver, or their dog has died. Like there are so many reasons contextually why a child may be having a harder time coping, But then you also, so those are like the contextual factors. Then you've got a major piece of this puzzle, which is the temperament factors. And by and large, for the families I see, the reason they are experiencing more challenges with their kids is because their child, based on their wiring, not something they chose or their parents created, it's just 
how their system processes their experiences in the world makes them bigger reactors. So Abby used the word defeating when it came to her kid that has these big reactions. I found it to be really isolating because I was looking around and you go on Instagram and it seems like these tips are working for everyone else. And if I'm really honest, I really did feel judged by my friends, by my family. Like if he would have a big reaction in front of people, there was that extra layer of like, what is wrong with me as a mom? What is wrong? I'm going to cry. Like what is wrong with him as a child? It was a really difficult time to be in. And, and we've worked through that and gotten to know him and what he needs more. And he needs different things than his, than his brothers need. He needs different things than his brothers need. But I was wondering if you could give people that were in my shoes words of encouragement about these kids and how they are just, they're, they're wired differently. Yeah. Well, I have so much, I want to say, you know, to your sort of courage and what an amazing gift it is of you sharing, you know, what this feels like in the trenches with highly reactive kids, because you're reflecting like what 99% of the parents that I see every day feeling and they all feel alone and they all feel exactly what you've described, judged, isolated, um, very alone. And it does break my heart because it doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. And when parents feel so alone and so distraught, the unfortunately, it's just pile on because most of the time, right, you're triggered because, you know, your sister with the really well-behaved kids and who are just, you know, greeting grandma and grandpa happily and immediately engaging in play and super regulated and your child is, you know, hiding under the couch or growling at people because he's so uncomfortable in a situation where he doesn't feel that familiar with these people, um, or he's overwhelmed from a sensory perspective, right? And so he's feeling very dysregulated. And all that does is make you as a parent more stressed, more anxious, and much less able in that moment to do what your child needs, which may be very different from what other children in that situation need. So I think it's just so important that you are speaking to this and if nothing else, letting other parents know that you are not alone. There are thousands, if not millions of parents out there who have a child who is wired in a way, and this this I hope answers your question, that they're wired in a way that their systems, like I think of it like they, they're, the way they take in their experiences in the world is like at a 10 decibel. Everything is processed so intensely, so deeply, not just emotionally, right? So like the emotional piece might be, 
a change in caregiver, right? Or like I have kids where, you know, the parents change the furniture around and the child is, you know, losing it because it feels so distressing Um, or they feel slighted very easily, right? They take everything personally or they're very self-conscious. And so they get much more distressed in situations where they can't do something, you know, perfectly. So there's sort of the features that are more, I would say, like our social emotional, right? And then there's also the whole sensory piece to it, which these kids are often wired also to register their experiences in the world through a sensory perspective more intensely. So they tend to have bigger reactions to sounds and smells and tastes and clothing um, and even light or even visual things. And so they get overwhelmed so much more quickly because they're absorbing so much. It's like they don't have a filter that other kids have, right? In my day and age, right, I just turned 60. So like back in the 1960s, people like me, we just, you know, were called drama queens, overreactors, thin-skinned people, you know, and the, the kids who could sort of weather these things much more easily and go with the flow and not be so quote unquote histrionic were like the thick skinned people. And that's what we wanted, right? That's what was accepted. That's what was valued. And there was a lot of very negative um, attributions to these kids and their parents were, and as you're saying still today, are seen as like too permissive and not setting enough limits, right? Because that's what he needs, right? Is a good time out. And so the good news is, we do know so much more now. And we know a lot more about temperament. And Elaine Aaron, who really sort of um, was a pioneer in understanding what we think of now as these highly sensitive kids, like they come by it honestly. They're not being overly dramatic. They're not purposefully trying to get attention, you know, by being, you know, by losing it more quickly. They're not being manipulative. They're, they're, they're just trying to cope with a system that is that doesn't have the filter that enables them to calm themselves more easily, to not pay attention to things that are not important in their environment. They're paying attention to everything. So these kids are incredible in so many ways, right? Like these are the kids who notice things that like take your breath away. Notice your moods, notice everything in the environment. They're incredibly bright, but they also are more likely to have meltdowns more quickly, right? Because their system is not able to calm themselves in a way a child who is not processing things so deeply can. And so they become often very controlling, right? They want to control their world in order to feel safe. And that's why you see these kids often becoming very demanding, right? Things have to be done in a very specific way. If you cut their sandwich on the wrong diagonal, if their banana breaks in the wrong, you know, in the wrong way or breaks at all, right? I, 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 I have several little girls who, when their moms wear their hair up, go ballistic, like literally demanding that their moms put their hair down because their association is my mom is, this is what she looks like. And this is what she has to be like in order for me to be safe. And they are not being manipulative or demanding. What they're reacting to is that they've made this clear association that this is 
what makes me feel good and how I know my mom to be. So when it's not that way, they are triggered into discomfort very quickly. They get very focused on predictability and wanting to know exactly what to expect. So when it doesn't happen the way they expect it, they lose it more quickly. So you can see why children who are wired in this way are going to be much more controlling often and are and and seem quote unquote spoiled and they are going to often have way more meltdowns because they're triggered into distress mode much more quickly. Claire, that answer for anyone who has a child who is in that position, we are all just saying, yes, I feel so seen. I feel so heard. Every one of those pieces of it with the sights and the sounds and the the smells even and the brighter lights and picking up on things, which can be a wonderful thing. But if you're going through a car wash, for instance, and all of a sudden one child is screaming or if a kiddo has a poopy diaper and one child is screaming because it smells so bad in the car, like we've, we've been there. We've been there with the broken banana. We've been there with the sandwich that's been cut. So every part of that, I, I feel like our audience can just see their child in that and just know and understand them more. Like they're not doing this on purpose. They're not doing it to to harm somebody. They are doing it because they can't figure out the world around them and they want just a sense of control. Um, whether that's with hair up in, in in a certain way or even, you know, how the morning routine goes. Um, that's one of the things like if drop off has to go a very specific way, walking up the stairs a specific way. Otherwise, you know, maybe running into the street and, you know, having a really big episode that way. And kind of like how Amy was explaining just the comparison from yourself to other people. I even noticed that comparison with my other children. Like, why, why is this the only one that is having the big reaction? Why, you know, why, why can't he be like the other others? So just, I, I can see him so much more right now. And I appreciate that. And I think one of the biggest things that we do as parents and one of our biggest jobs is just to make sure that that child isn't hurting other people. You know, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a sibling, maybe they're in class and you don't want them to hurt another kid in class. I can remember so many instances where, you know, running into the street or throwing toys at siblings, um, pushing their siblings down, like that happens often in our household. And it's really, really hard to see that child exhibiting such aggressive behavior. So for kids who are getting aggressive, what strategies do you have for parents that we can help in these situations? So it's it's a great question. And it, it's it's, again, why I always go back to the mindsets, right? Like if you're if your mindset is, I have an amazing child who is having a really difficult moment, he's not, no child sets out to want to be hurtful. Remember, like if he's being hurtful, it's because in that moment, he does not have the ability to manage his body and his body is acting before his brain, right? So with that mind shift, you're already positioned to respond in a way that threads this seemingly elusive needle of being calm, being loving, being connected, while also setting the clear limits and boundaries, right? That's one of the things when it comes to these kids who act out in these ways that is so difficult for parents because all you're reading on the internet is connection and love and give your child a tight bear hug or do belly breaths or box breathing and he'll calm and all will be right with the world and you will feel like a perfect parent. But that's not how it works with these kids, right? What happens with these kids often is, you know, they're screaming, stop telling me to breathe. You know, if you tell me to breathe one more time or they don't want to hug, hugs feel uncomfortable to them in that moment. They don't want to be touched. Like there's so much that happens in real life that does not match 
what they're seeing, right, on social media. So in my work with families, what we're doing is saying, yes, we are going to help you stay calm and connected, but it can only happen if you have a game plan, if you have a, a strategy for how you're going to help your child get back into control. And so that takes me to the next mind shift, which is you have no control over your child, meaning you can't make them do anything. You can't make a child agree to stop grabbing or not hit somebody or pee or poop on the potty or fall asleep at night or agree to put his dishes in the sink like or clean up his toys. Like You can't make a child do anything. The only thing you control is yourself and your reaction and how you set up and scaffold the situation in order to help your child be able to come and ultimately make better choices. So in my work with families, we're never trying to control the child, meaning we're not saying things like, stop hitting, stop yelling. If you don't do that, there's no Paw Patrol later. So we're we're no longer using any threats, any nagging any bribery or reward. And by the way, bribery and rewards are exactly the same thing, right? Where all of those tactics are all designed or predicated on hoping against hope that your child is going to change his behavior and stop hitting or stop throwing or stop pushing, right? Which means that your child is completely in charge because you're you're hoping against hope that one of those strategies is going to get him to change his mind. The problem is with these kids is often they're they're not in control. They can't take it. They can't even take advantage of the the request. You know the the potential reward because they're in red zone, right? They're now, their downstairs brain has been triggered. They're in fight flight mode and they're reacting. And second of all, that means your entire strategy is based on their being able to get with the program, which they may not be able to do. And that's where parents often start to lose it. Things go off the rails. They get really mad and they get dysregulated. And that's when co-regulation cannot happen because they're human. Their kids throwing things at them. They're biting them. They're spitting at them. And they're, they're not able in that moment to get the child in control. So that's like the first major mind shift is we're going to stop trying to change the child's behavior and we're going to work on changing the situation, right? So now I'm going to go back, Abby, to your specific question, right? So you're at home and your child is, you know, hitting a sibling, right? Or being destructive with some toy. They're playing with Legos. They're having a great time, but something's triggering to him. The other kids aren't doing it the exactly the way he wants to do it. And so he's now deciding that he's going to knock down the towers or he's going to start throwing the Legos, right? So I'm thinking, okay, great kid, difficult moment. How am I going to help him get back into control and stay calm and loving. That's where the plan comes in. So I'm going to call the child Charlie, okay? And it might be something like this. I would pause and I would say, Charlie, we can't throw Legos. Let's help you find something else to do with the Legos. So my first attempt would always be to engage his body and his mind in something productive, like trying to figure out what's he trying to do and how can I help him do that in an acceptable way? Because just telling a child to stop is rarely helpful because often they're either in red zone and their brain is flooded with emotion and stress and they can't, they can't 
pivot and control themselves, or they're meeting a sensory need, right? And just telling someone to stop rarely helps. So my first attempt is to help them do something constructive with that, okay? And if they can do that, awesome, right? But what we're never doing is shaming. It's not like stop throwing, stop throwing. Your your brothers aren't going to want to play with you if you keep throwing, right? Because the second you start getting punitive and shaming, the brain gets flooded with stress and emotion and can't think clearly and can't do the calming they need to make a better choice, right? So it's just like, ooh, do you need to throw? Let's help you find something to throw. And I would immediately, and often that does work because you're not throwing them under the bus. You're not shaming them. You're acknowledging their need and you're trying to help them do it in another way. If he can't, right? He's like, and he goes right back to what he was doing, trying to destroy the other kids' towers. Then you might say, oh, no problem. I'll be a helper. And that's when I would help him go to a space that you control, that has a boundary, so you can help him calm and end the destruction, right? What we're we're getting rid of is what I call the gray zone, which is that deadly space where you're begging, pleading, bribing, threatening trying to get your child to change his behavior. And instead, you are making a plan that you ultimately control, which is providing a boundary so that you are ending the behavior that is spiraling and is destructive. And let's take a break from our podcast sponsor, BetterHelp. In today's episode, we're talking about some pretty deep stuff with Claire. She is such an expert when it comes to these high reactors. But we know in our everyday mom lives, it can wear on us. It can be so challenging. You can feel like you are trying everything, yet still feel like you're not enough. I get it. I have been there and I've had these exact same conversations with my therapist while we navigated a high reactor. So know that you can speak to an online therapist about anything. If it is something with your children that you're trying to navigate, if it is something with your partner you're trying to navigate, with work, with yourself, with, I mean, the list goes on. And what I personally love about it is that it's so convenient. You can go on a walk and talk on the phone. You can just send chats back and forth. Or my favorite, you can meet almost over a video type of setting where you're talking one-on-one with your therapist. So join the over 2 million individuals who are using BetterHelp Online Therapy by going to betterhelp.com slash herself. You do get 10% off with this link as a Herself podcast listener. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash herself for the mental health therapy that you deserve. Now back to our show. So let's talk about that space because we keep on hearing over and over again that timeouts are a thing of the past. So it's just been kind of ingrained into our minds. But I know that you speak about how it can be I mean, a strategy for our big reactors. So can some separation during these times be constructive and how can we do so safely? So this is to me such an important discussion to have because as we've talked about, so many families were coming to see me years and years ago and they had been reading about time in and about how you know, separating from a child in that moment is um, negating their feelings, it's abandonment, it's rejection, it's telling them that their feelings don't matter, that they need to be alone with their feelings, and that it was really destructive um, and harmful to children, right? And 
it was at the same time that I was really struggling with how am I going to help these parents in these moments when the fact is, is that staying with their child only led to things spiraling out of control more intensely. I had parents sending me videos of like literally dads trying to like give a child a bear hug, but the child is so dysregulated. And, you know, in those moments when they're in fight flight, they've got like this Herculean strength, like these three, four and five-year-olds, like these dads even were not able to really get them back into control. And the child is scratching them and spitting at them. And I'm looking at this thinking, oh my God, like this is so destructive to this relationship right now. This child's out of control. The dad is not able to get him back in control. The child's getting more dysregulated. The dad's getting really harsh and punitive because there it's an impossible situation. And I, as I started to grapple with the reality of what parents were dealing with in their homes, because remember, I do a lot of home visits and I get a lot of video. I'm not just imagining. I'm literally in vivo feeling what those parents are feeling. And that is when I had this epiphany that it is such a disservice to tell parents that creating a separation in those moments is harmful to their children because these parents were coming to me, by the way, Amy, sobbing about like... I feel completely paralyzed. I instinctively know that this cannot be good, right? That my child is scratching at me and spitting at me and I'm only human and I can't make him stop and it's only getting worse. But if I do do a timeout, I'm a bad parent. I'm not co-regulating. I'm not staying connected to him. And I realized in that moment, I really needed to rethink this because in the real world, time in sometimes is actually not the most helpful strategy. And so what happened is I came up with this concept of the safe space break because indeed time out the way it was originally conceived, like in my day and age, was punitive and harmful and not something I would ever suggest to a parent. That's like, that's it. You're done. Go to your room. I don't want to see you anymore. You're misbehaving. Go and think about why you are hurting your siblings, right? That is decidedly not what we are talking about here. That is harmful and detrimental. It's all the way you do it. So what I came up with is this safe space break concept where I have parents talk with kids way in advance. This is not something you set up in the heat of the moment. And it looks something like this. Okay. So it might be, you know, Abby, you are an amazing human being. Like we adore you and your passion and intensity is amazing. And you genuinely share with them all the amazing things about their intensity because there are so many. And when you're happy, you know, you're, you're, thinking of amazingly creative things, and you're the most generous, empathic, wonderful person. And, not but, and when something happens that's unexpected or that feels uncomfortable or is a disappointment, your feelings are also really, really big. And that makes total sense. That's who you are and you're amazing. 
And we are going to help you in those moments because we know you don't mean to be harmful in those moments, but sometimes your body acts before your brain and we're your helpers. And in those moments, we're going to help you take a break to help your body get back in control because what we can't allow is anybody in our family using our bodies in ways that are harmful. So here's what we're going to do. We have this amazing space. We're going to call it our safe space break. And you fill it with the child, with um, beanbag chairs and everything made by Nerf and exercise bands and, you know, a kitty tent filled with big fluffy pillows. And you say, this is your amazing space where you can be when your body needs a break. And what I say to parents is, absolutely, if you can stay in there and you are not a lightning rod for them, absolutely. But in the situations where your presence is actually a stimulant, like the child is still clawing at you and your your presence is actually increasing their dysregulation, that's when it's not helpful to them. And so in those situations, I I suggest to parents that they just say, you know, Abby, I'm going to be on the other side of the door humming. And when you count to 10, I'll know you're ready. I'm here for you. I'm your helper. So to me, that is a much more loving way to stay connected to a child than literally, you know, screaming and yelling and begging your child to stop being destructive and being hurtful. Yeah. And I, this, like we keep saying it, it makes total sense to the people that have experienced this before. I know that's been a scene in my house where we're trying to regulate and it, it kind of looks like a wrestling match with the parent because they are so strong and they're doing things over and over again. I have this story from recently. I was over at Abby's house with a bunch of other families and with my big reacting child, I could see in his eyes that he was in that red zone. I could tell he was exhausted. I knew the look that he was giving me. And in front of all of these parents, he's being physical with me. He's being aggressive. He's he's a 10 out of 10. And he really wanted his, he calls it blanky and fluffy. And I knew in that moment, like, okay, everyone at this party is going to think I'm giving in to him and I am giving him what he wants and he's in control, but like, I can tell he needs to leave the situation. Like this is not working for him. I put him in the car. We drove back to our house, which is 10 minutes away. We got that. I knew from doing that, I knew he was going to fall asleep in the car and what he really needed was space and some sleep. So we've been in those situations before my husband and I, where, you know, often one of us might take him out of the situation in on a drive, but we know that that might not always be possible. Are there strategies that you give for parents when this meltdown, this 10 out of 10, they're seeing red happens in a social situation? You know, we've got the holidays coming up. It's just, it's a lot of pressure for those of us that experience this because like we said before, it can feel like, oh my gosh, like I'm so embarrassed. This is such a big you know, no one was going to miss what was happening between me and my child. Like he had brought the whole party into this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm really glad you raised that because it, 
there are things you can do that I find relieve a tremendous amount of stress for parents. And I just will point you to, I, I have an article on my website called when going home for the holidays is more stressful than joyful. And it actually was written for the holidays, but the truth is it applies to any social situation. And so I just point you to that because there's a lot in there that we may not even get to, but essentially what I find is most helpful to the people in your sphere, right? So these might be your good friends, your family. I find it's helpful to just have a conversation with them outside the heat of the moment, not with your child present where you explain. So what I would say to my friends and family is that you know that they observe a lot of challenging encounters with you and your children. And it's really important for you to help them understand what you're understanding about your child. And because you want to give them that perspective um, and so that it can also relieve your stress in being together as a, as a group, which is so important to you. And then you explain, you know, especially you guys have three kids. So, you know, it's so easy for you to share that, you know, you've got three kids who share a lot of DNA and who are in the same family environment have very different reactions. And what you're learning about your child is that the way he's wired to experience the world is very different than his siblings and maybe their, their own children. And so he gets overloaded much more quickly in um, in in big crowds, he can get triggered into discomfort very easily. He gets overwhelmed and therefore he often becomes demanding and controlling or he may have more meltdowns. He may become destructive and none of this is he doing on purpose. And what you've learned is that what he needs in those moments, and this is, by the way, a major important mindset, is that when kids are spiraling out of control, they need boundaries. They don't need more choices. They don't need you to go down the rabbit hole of talking them to death about their feelings. And that's maybe another part of our conversation, but that's another misunderstanding a lot of my parents have. They're like, I know, sweetie, this is so tough. This is a really, really difficult situation. This is so tricky. You have really big, and the child is just getting worse and worse because it's too much. You definitely want to talk to your kids about their feelings, but in the heat of the moment, what they need is, you know, Brady, it's a really tough moment. A lot is going on. I'm going to be your helper. And literally you do exactly what you did, Amy. You pick him up, you say, and you did exactly what I'm saying, which is you created a boundary. You put him in a car seat. He feels held. You're able to stay calm. And, and I want to point out that like that example you gave me to me is perfect parenting. Like perfect parenting isn't like having your child calm because you've said, oh, I know this is tricky. Let's take five deep breaths and you'll be fine. And then your child regulates and everyone thinks that's perfect parenting. What, and that is great parenting. But what you did was way harder because your child isn't in a moment where they're going to take advantage of the deep belly breaths. You saw what was happening. You didn't criticize him. You didn't judge him. You didn't shame him in front of his peers or the other families around. You knew exactly what was happening. You knew he wasn't misbehaving on purpose. You didn't go down the rabbit hole to get into the gray zone of trying to convince him to get with the program. You 
acknowledged it, you validated his feelings, and you created a boundary that helped him reorganize, that ended the very destructive situation. Because remember, it's not just destructive for the other people, it's destructive for the child. That's why stopping them is so important. It's not good for him to be somebody who destroys other people's things or who gets aggressive. And you want to say that to him, like, I know you don't like it and it feels bad to you because a lot of these kids' parents report to me after the storm is over, they will say the most poignant, heartbreaking things like, you know, a monster got into my brain. You know, I can't control my body. It feels awful to them once the storm is over. So what I would say to you is the key in those moments is less choices, more boundaries. The more you try and get them, oh, well, you do you want to do this or do you want to do that? They're not able to process that in the moment. Once they're triggered into red zone, it's oops, tricky moment. Let's help you take a break. And it might be the car seat. It might be the safe space break. You might take them out of a classroom and have them do bear crawls. Like you do things that reorganize them and create a boundary to take away the stimulus that is causing the dysregulation. And now let's take a break from our podcast partner, Gooder. You guys know how much Amy and I love Gooder sunglasses. And a lot of times in the winter, I don't know about you, but I don't immediately think about bringing my sunglasses. But you guys, eye protection is important all year round. And with the sun reflecting off the snow right now, it is especially important to have your Gooder sunglasses with you at all times. So my favorites lately have been Amelia Earhart ghosted me, going to the Valhalla and a ginger soul. So you'll see me wearing those quite a bit. Colin, on the other hand, he goes a little crazy. So he's been rocking the Voight Camp Vision and absolutely loving them as we get into winter right now. So let us know what style you're looking at. Everything from people who have smaller heads to people who have bigger heads. And if you're worried about how they're going to look on you, you can always go to their website and do a virtual try-on. It is so cool to see what the shades look like on your face. So head to gooder.com and use code HERSELF to get free shipping on your order. Again, that's gooder, G-O-O-D-R.com and use code HERSELF to get free shipping. Now back to our show. And one thing I want to say, reflect back, Claire, is like this has been such a journey for my husband and I because in the beginning we were trying to like it's almost like this ego part of parenting where you're trying to like implement the things that work with the other children. And then you realize like, oh boy, okay, he does need to be parented differently. And I want to say to people like you just get more confident in those choices. So I understand in the beginning, I would have been so mortified to leave that party. Like it took me out of the party too. But now I'm like, I know this is the best choice for him and probably the only choice that is going to allow him to regulate and then re-enter this situation. One thing that I did want to say before I move on to the next question is that this is challenging because what I'm talking about is that my husband and I now, we look at the weekend and we can say, this feels really full. And we know that's one of his triggers. Like if he has event after event and there's all of this stimulation. So as a family, we have to make certain choices that like, oh, shucks, like we're going to have to miss out on that, you know, 
football gathering, but like we know that that's just not setting him up for success because we've learned over the years, if we do that to him, like we're putting him in a situation where he might not be his best self. And that is hard as parents because we don't want to miss out. So I totally understand, especially going into the holidays, if you're in a situation where it is hard with some of these kiddos in your own experience. Many of my parents, the families I work with, do feel a, a strong sense of grief and loss, which is is so understandable because they, you know, I often hear from parents like they can't, they want to be at the soccer match with all the other parents, like hanging out on a Saturday afternoon. And if their child, you know, if their child is not able to participate because he has two activities and they're his preferred activities and they're not a sport it's a loss for them. And I think it's just really, really important to validate that. Like you need to lean into that and know that like that's fair and it is a loss. And you're also giving your child the greatest gift of managing your own emotions um, in order to do exactly what you're describing, Amy, which is to be able to tune into what your child actually needs and providing that. Okay, so we could talk to you all day, but I know that we are going to start to wrap up here. One thing that I thought was a really interesting conversation that happened in in my DMs is someone said, okay, I have a question. Do you warn teachers ahead of time? And I told her, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting because for us, what has happened is we did not have conversations ahead of time and he actually does so well at school. They don't see the same thing that we see. So it was because I was like, if we would have had that conversation, then they're kind of expecting this behavior and he doesn't display it at school. He saves that all for us at home. But I also could understand other parents wanting to get, because what if that's not their experience? What if their child also acts out at school? Can you give us a little insight into, you know, if our kids are in daycare, if they're going off to kindergarten, do we have those conversations with the teachers ahead of time? Well, I think I'm going to try and address like a, a lot of different tentacles of your question, right? So one is that what you're describing with your child is extremely common. And again, I'll say on my website, I have a whole article called Why Children Are Superstars at at School and Terrors, quote unquote, because that's what parents, that's the language, that's what it feels like at home. Um, and, and for exactly the reason you said, Amy, which I think is very important to acknowledge is that they, when they act out at home, it's because they feel safe at home. It's actually a good thing, even though it feels maddening. It, you know, schools like a military operation. In order to function a safe environment, it's you know there are so many rules and expectations, and it's very scaffolding to these kids. They know exactly what to expect. There's no gray zone. No teacher is negotiating with a child whether they can actually have pretzels for snack when snack is really cheese sticks. Like they're not saying you you know the child's not you know vying for ten more minutes on the playground. Um, because they know it is what it is and it actually is calming to kids, right? And so often they do well because of that, because of the scaffolding that that environment provides and because you've done an amazing job as parents. You've helped them learn how to um, comport themselves in the outside world, which is great because you don't have control of what happens in the outside world. So you want them 
to be testing at home or showing their true colors at home, right? Because they feel safe with you and that's where they can sort of fall apart. So that's a major reason. And in the article, I go into way more depth on that. But in the interest of time, what I would say is that like to thread again, the needle that you're raising is if your child does tend to really be able to regulate himself or herself better in the outside world, then all I might do when a child is starting school is just saying, you know, we really, we look forward to, to communicating and we really want open communication. So, it, you know, we want to know what you're seeing and learning about our child so that we can support him at home because we know that what happens at school is very different, right? The demands of school are so different than home. The amount of stimulation and transitions and rules and things they have to follow, um, the the lack of one-on-one attention versus what they get home is very different. So you really do get to learn a lot about who your child is in a group situation from the teacher. So you want to say, we really want to know. And that will set you up, right? So that if there is an issue, you know the teacher is going to be telling you about it. I would say with the families I work with who whose kids really have struggled in group situations um, consistently, then I would say that I find it very helpful to connect with the teacher and say, look, you know, you know, again, you know, Sarah's a great kid. She's super passionate and excitable and she's but she's got a really high arousal level. She can be intense and sometimes that can cause her to, uh, you know, to melt down more quickly um, or to, you know, get frustrated more easily. And we want to share with you the things we've learned about her that have helped because teachers love that. They love these kids. They want that information. So you set it up as a partnership and it gives you a chance both to share what you've learned about your child and also when and if the teacher starts to see it happening, they already have, you know, this, this memory of this conversation with you that, that helps them put it into a context and helps them respond much more likely with empathy than going down a path of being sort of more correcting and punitive because like, oh yeah, the parents did say that sometimes in larger groups, she can get overwhelmed and here's what works. And that to me is a really important strategy to be collaborators with the teachers. So I think part of it is using your judgment, but I would always err on the side of safety, honestly. And I think conversations with teachers just to give them some perspective and context can be extremely helpful. And in this day and age, it doesn't like, it doesn't, it doesn't set the teacher up to expect your child to misbehave. You're more saying, if this happens, here's what we understand about him. And here's what really helps him. Well, and also in this day and age, we have so many more opportunities with the welcome night and emails and messaging systems and parent-teacher conferences to have those conversations. Um, but overall, Claire, this has been such a tangible and real conversation. Thank you so much for having this with us. And please let our community know where they can find more of your information if they do have a kiddo or two who is struggling with these issues. So the easiest thing is just to go to my website, which is learnerchilddevelopment.com. Everything about my practice, how to set up a consult, tons of blogs on all the issues we've discussed are there. It's sort of one-stop shopping. 
Well, thank you again, Claire, for being on. And for those who this just resonated with, know that Amy and I are trying something new. So this next week, we're going to go into more details of our experience with Claire's teachings and our own experiences in our own home to give you really the full story so that you can feel more supported, more solidarity, and also have some more solutions. So make sure that you're subscribed and that you listen in next week for more details. Thanks again for listening, guys.